National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. This is a week of consistories at the Vatican. There will be three of them. On August 27th, Pope Francis will place a red beretta on the heads of 20 new cardinals in an ordinary consistory. Then he'll have another consistory to approve the canonization of new saints. And then yet there is another, an extraordinary consistory for which all the cardinals of the church were invited to Rome. This consistory, this extraordinary one, is for the purpose of reviewing the governance changes brought by the Roman Curia's new constitution, Predicate Evangelium. EWTN News' executive editor, Matthew Bunsen, and my co-host here on Register Radio, is covering these events in Rome. But before his trip, Matthew gave us a preview on what to expect during this unusually busy August in Rome. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. Matthew Bunsen and I are together today in the Washington, D.C. studio, just a few days ahead of the consistory. Uh, Matthew, it's great to be here with you again in person. It's always good to have you in studio and in Washington, D.C. It's a lot of fun to, to just work together, and I'm so used to working always. from home. Yeah. <laughs> so we are also joined in studio today by another EWTN colleague, Andrea Pachati bayer who's EWTN News' legal analyst and who's also the director of the Conscience Project. Andrea, it's awesome to have you here in studio. I think this is the first time you and I have been in studio together. No, it's a great experience for me, and I love working with both you and Matthew. It's such a treat. Thanks for having me. All right, we've got a good trio here. Andrea, you've been working on a column that actually touches on the subject of the consistory of cardinals, and I know that's kind of weird because you usually cover uh, religious freedom um, for the register, but uh, unfortunately, uh, this uh, upcoming consistory is not going to be attended by one of the eldest cardinals, and that is Cardinal Zen of Hong Kong. What's happening with Cardinal Zen? Well, you're right, Jeanette, that this is um, a huge religious freedom issue. Cardinal Joseph Zen, he's 90 years old. He's the Bishop Emeritus of Hong Kong. And he will be unable to join his uh, fellow cardinals in Rome because he is the subject of an upcoming trial in September by the authorities um, challenging him for a series of kind of questionable head-scratching um, regulation violations, but it really looks to be they're trying to silence this great champion of democracy and of religious freedom in Hong Kong and has incredible influence all over the world and particularly um, in China. You know, Father Raymond D'Souza wrote in a in a piece that, that we published this week about the August consistories, uh, and he, he wrote how this is a, a moment where people are kind of looking to the Vatican to say something about what's going on uh, with Cardinal Zen, and, and yet we haven't heard very much. So it is a um, maybe a moment where we will see if this does come up in the course of these discussions. I, I would say especially in the larger discussion, uh, the Extraordinary Consistory, which is, is something that doesn't happen very often. I believe it's the third one in Pope Francis's um, pontificate. We'll talk more about that with Matthew in the second part of this show. Uh, but another area where many people are looking to 
the Vatican and what they have to say regarding religious liberty is uh, Nicaragua. And uh, the Register wrote its editorial uh, last week on that very topic. Uh, Joan Desmond was on this show talking about that last week because she helped pen that editorial. But it's a subject that you've been following as well because of its religious liberty implications. Well, and it's a very interesting situation, Jeanette. Um, I had lived in, in the Americas, and it's as a Catholic, you kind of feel like it's a safe place, right? Because there's such a strong presence of Catholics in the Americas, thanks to the the presence of, of Spanish settlers and just the evangelization that, that went on during the, the colonization of many of these countries. But we're finding that socialism doesn't like religion. Mm-hmm. And in Nicaragua and in a number of countries, people of faith and especially leaders in faith communities are now targets. And that's one of the biggest challenges. And it's a surprising one to have in our backyard here as Americans that we see um, people being incarcerated, leadership being incarcerated. It's it's a very, very disconcerting situation. Where Nicaragua is concerned, though, this is a, a bit of a deja vu all over again, isn't it? Because we have seen this uh, with Daniel Ortega. Uh, absolutely. Going all the way back to his time with the Marxist Sandinistas. Well, absolutely, Matthew. And this is not only it, this individual um, a politi- politician exerting and flexing his muscles again, trying to silence religious uh, believers and leaders, but we've seen throughout the entire region. Um, there have been several elections where left-leaning socialists have taken power in predominantly or formerly conservative countries and leaders of religious uh, communities and churches, especially the Catholic Church, are very, very anxious about that shift and whether or not they're going to be able to evangelize and live freely like they once did before. Andrea, I know you've covered for us uh, at the Register both religious liberty issues within our country and, uh, of course, globally. We talked of two global situations. Are there others that we should be on guard for? You know, I wish that I would say no, but it's not the case. We should be very attentive to the plight of um, the Nigerian Christians and, and particularly Catholics we hear almost daily of kidnappings of religious sisters. Just recently, four nuns had been kidnapped in Nigeria. We've heard of seminarians, priests, um, also just r- regular churchgoers um, that are being attacked uh, and threatened with violence. It's a very, very delicate situation. What's really inspiring is these people, these brothers and sisters in the faith, continue to live their faith joyfully without any inhibitions. They're not um, shying away from gathering together. Instead, their faith is growing stronger through these contradictions. But they definitely need our prayers, and they need our our pushback as, as a country and, and um, politically to support and defend their right to believe. Absolutely. You know, Andrea, it makes me think, I mean, you um, you and I, through our work, have gotten to know one another, but I also know you to be a praying woman, um, someone who has encouraged our, our listeners uh, and readers to pray. What are our responsibilities as Catholics in this moment um, when it comes to these religious liberty issues? What can we actually do? You know, I think there are so many different things that we can do depending on our station in life. Right. First and foremost is have a life of prayer. There are people who are vulnerable who are just trying to have that personal relationship with God, and we need to pray for their safety, for their fortitude. Second, we need to 
actually embrace our own faith. I mean, we have been challenged so much and there's always a temptation to kind of dial it in or stay away or find excuses from becoming deeper and growing deeper into our faith. So we need to kind of have that personal conversion and we need to talk about it um, how important faith is in our lives. I think if our political leaders know that their constituents find religion to be the center, the central part of their lives, they'll be more willing to defend our rights. Um, if we hide it under a bushel basket or keep it within the boundaries of the parish parking lot, we can't expect it to be a part of an agenda for our government leaders. And then we also need to recognize that we have a, a blessing here. Um, religious freedom is our first freedom here in, in the United States, and we need to continue to be that beacon of light across the globe and push for our foreign policy to have as a priority religious freedom at all four corners of, of the world. You know, I'll mention a couple of pieces that you have written, um, one for the Register and, and one for uh, the Washington Examiner. Um, both of these are on topics that the Register covers quite frequently and that you've covered over the years, um, uh, abortion. So uh, the examiner pieces, religious freedom is not an argument for abortion. And the Register pieces, trans medicine, in quotes, <laughs> it's real and it's dangerous. And, you know, I'd love for you to tease out these pieces, but I also want to turn to something you said. You know, when you write about these kind of topics, um, sometimes the responses are not very pretty. <laughs> um, and so I think as Christians, our response when we are standing for the truth and when we are standing um, for religious liberty actually puts us in the crosshairs um, in ways that um, can hurt um, and that we are still called to be Christian and, and char- charitable in those moments. So that's a run-on sentence, not really a question, but <laughs> what are your thoughts? First, I couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> I, I do think that we, we do need to be prepared for a, a white martyrdom. That's clearly going to be something that anyone in faith right now and in the secular environment that we're in need to be prepared for. And if we're called to a red martyrdom like Cardinal Zen may be called and other people that are incarcerated, we need to know first that God's in charge. He is a loving father and be um, kind of unflinching in that and, um, and do so with joy. As a, as a lawyer, but also somebody who's a keen observer of culture, especially religious liberty issues around the world, talk a little bit about the fact that uh, what some people would consider to be unthinkable can actually happen. I mean, we look mm. just in the 20th century uh, of Nazi Germany, of Russia, uh, and now we're seeing it in places like Venezuela at one point was one of the most stable countries in South America, and, and now it is an absolute economic and political basket case. So talk about that, especially from a Catholic standpoint of how we need to be prepared. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Venezuela because at the time that things went kind of very, very wrong there, I was living in Colombia and um, many people, many Venezuelans fled their country because of uh, oppression and being targeted. Um, And Colombians opened their doors and their hearts. And it was a great example to all of us that when there are people that are suffering, if we can, we need to respond in whatever ways, whether it's material, um, when we know that, you know, people were fleeing Afghanistan in the diocese of Arlington where I live, many people in our diocese responded with 
whatever material needs were were required of people who came back with nothing, who fled oppression. Um, you know, the enemy definitely is um, trying to take advantage, and he's the prince of the earth, but he's not the victor. And I think that um, each one of us need to realize through all of these difficult times that our country is facing, that our world is facing, whether it's the pressures of the pandemic or political instability, we're still on the right side if we're with Christ. And we've got to go outside of our comfort zone. We've got to make sacrifices because we're called to and be aware that that's the most contagious thing that we can we can do. It spreads. Absolutely. Andrea, it's always good uh, to talk to you. It's always good to be in your presence. It's it's fun to, to be in studio. I invite our, our listeners to go to ncregister.com, uh, find her latest column on trans medicine, but also you can go to the Washington Examiner. This is really a, a, a very interesting piece with a twist at the end. Um, it's called Religious Freedom is Not an Argument for Abortion. Thanks for being with us, Andrea. Thanks, guys. When we come back, Matthew and I will discuss the creation of 20 new cardinals and the subsequent gathering of the princes of the church at the Vatican. This is Register Radio on EWTN Radio. Stay tuned for more. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the Register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the Register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. A prayer for our priests. You came from among us to be for us one who serves. We thank you for ministering Christ to us and helping us minister Christ to each other. We are grateful for the many gifts you bring to our community, for drawing us together in worship, for visiting us in our homes, for comforting us in sickness, for showing us compassion, for blessing our marriages, for baptizing our children, for confirming us in our calling, for supporting us in bereavement, for helping us to grow in faith, for encouraging us to take the initiative, and for helping the whole community realize God's presence among us. For our part, We pray that we may always be attentive to your needs and never take you for granted. You, like us, need friendship and love, welcome and a sense of belonging, kind words and acts of thoughtfulness. We pray also for the priests who have wounded the priesthood. May we be willing to forgive and may they be open to healing. Let us support one another during times of crisis. God, our Father, we ask you to bless our priests and confirm them in their calling. Give them the gifts they need to respond with generosity 
and a joyful heart. We offer this prayer for our priest, who is our brother and friend. Amen. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the National Catholic Register, here in studio with Matthew Bunsen. And we are meeting together here in studio just a few days before Matthew attends uh, the consistories in Rome. And as I mentioned, there are three of them that are happening over the next uh, week or so. Um, but there's something Matthew sandwiched right between them, which <laughs> is, is quite interesting, and it's a it's a little papal trip. So, a couple of interesting things about this these whole this whole gathering of events is one, it's August in Rome, right. and I have lived in Rome. You have. You have been uh, <laughs> to Rome in August, and we both know it is hotter than uh, where I'm from, Louisiana, and yes. where you live, in Washington D.C. <laughs> Washington yes. D.C. So it's it's pretty bad. Yeah, um, not to mention that the August uh, Ferragosto is it's the it's the time of year when no one with any sense stays in Rome except I, tourists. Except so the, tourists, the Romans yes, right. leave, and the tourists are there. Um, but this is when the Pope chose to have. A consistory. What what do you think's going on here? It's unusual. It's uh, the first uh, consistory. If, uh, if we sort of look back on it, and I think it's 1807 uh, when Guido Bono Cavalcini was named uh, by Pope Pius VII. Uh, so we have to go way back. This is the time of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, and he named him actually in, in petto or in pectore. Uh, so in other words, he didn't even make it public at the time. So it is extremely unusual to have a, uh, a consistory in August. You were mentioning something important about the weather. Usually the popes spent their summers uh, at Castel Gandolfo. That's right. With good reason. In because the it was so hot that they would try to escape through the heat of the city, but also the mosquitoes and the malaria. So malaria is not really much of a problem anymore, but the heat is still there. Absolutely. Uh, but as we all know, Francis, uh, Pope Francis uh, prefers to have staycations. So he That's does not true. actually go to Castel Gandolfo, which tends to be now deserted most of the year. I don't know. Maybe that's the reason why he's um, he's had this August uh, consistory. But it is an, a very important one in that, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, there have been only three extraordinary consistories where he calls uh, all of the cardinals to Rome, anyone who does not have serious reason for not being there. And so that this is a big event. It and is. It's very yep. important. We go back almost eight years uh, since the last one. That's right. That's right. But I, but we missed something. He's got a trip sandwich in the middle of all of these important events in Rome, in the Vatican, right? He's, he does. He's heading to a little town uh, not too far from Rome, uh, Aquila. And uh, it is uh, otherwise uh, tiny. It could be easily overlooked. But it is also the burial place of Pope St. Celestine V, uh, who was pope for a very brief time, around 1294, 1295. Uh, he was a hermit uh, who was elected after a long sede uh, vacante, and the cardinals couldn't agree on anyone, and they settled on this hermit monk uh, and named him pope. He was completely unsuited for the office and resigned. That's the important part about Celestine V. Uh, the other important aspect about his tomb is that uh, another recent pope, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, made a trip there. No one really paid that much attention. This is a few years before he resigned or retired. Uh, he left on the tomb a pallium, which, of course, is one of the important symbols of his authority, his position, his office. 
like I said, there wasn't a lot of attention to it at the time, but looking back, uh, this seemed to have been an indicator. So when Pope Francis announces that he's bringing all the cardinals to Rome, he's going to have a, another consistory, and then he's going to Aquila. Let's just say eyebrows were raised and a great <laughs> exactly. deal of ink was spent <laughs> questioning whether or not he was planning something when he goes to Aquila. He himself has said uh, that he has no plans to resign, uh, subject to what God wants. Uh, but it's still an intriguing visit to make. It really is intriguing, and I just I always go back to Pope Francis being a, a pope of surprises, and and he sort of gets tickled, I think, by making a mess and and causing us to spill that ink only to correct us later. Well, that phrase and that he coined, Hagen Leo. Hagen Leo, exactly. Yep. This is one of those moments. So we will see what happens in the in the next few days um, with this 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 interesting uh, side trip. Um, but also these important consistories. So the first of those is on the 27th, uh, the day most of you are listening to this. 20 men have been selected as the newest cardinals. Actually, it was 21, but one declined. Yep. Um, who's who among these new cardinals? Well, this is an interesting group. Uh, his selections tend always to be uh, surprising uh, in a way that they're following a pattern, though, and this one adheres to that. Uh, he's been doing this really from the start of his pontificate. On the one hand, he has made a point of uh, skipping what are traditional cardinalatial sees, uh, and yet uh, he does appoint people from places that are fairly obscure. Uh, we have uh, an American uh, bishop, now cardinal-elect Robert McElroy of San Diego, which for those who may be aware, San Diego is a, a good-sized diocese, but it is also a suffragan diocese. In other words, it's in the metropolitan, the province of Los Angeles. Uh, it is conspicuous in the fact that uh, Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles has not been named to the college, but Cardinal McElroy has. Uh, so that's an indicator, too, of Pope Francis's preferences for how he goes about selecting. But then... The other really key thing, I think, in this group is a standout for that. Uh, he chooses bishops to be cardinals from the peripheries, the periferia, as he calls it. So we have, for example, uh, the Archbishop of Singapore. Uh, we have two from India, including Hyderabad. Uh, we have, as well, a, a fairly obscure bishop from Como, Italy, uh, who, much like McElroy with uh, Archbishop Gomez, is a suffragan of Milan, I think that's uh, Archbishop Mario Del Pino. So you've got some very uh, interesting picks on the part of Pope Francis. But again, he's sending a couple of messages about the peripheries, about choosing bishops who represent the far-flung corners of the world, who have that perspective uh, of places that can be forgotten, that can be overlooked. Very, very true. And uh, as I mentioned before, Cardinal Raymond D'Souza kind of uh, gave us what we called a table setter in our editorial room, which is just a, a highlight of what we might expect. Uh, it's online at ncregister.com, and it's called August Anticipation, What to Expect at the Cardinal's Consistory. And he actually made a point about, I think he said it was the second youngest of the, of the new bunch, um, the first <laughs> cardinal um, from East Timor. Uh, so that is... Um, Let's see. Uh, you're better at names than I am. Yes. Why don't you go for this? Well, there's uh, uh, Giorgio Marengo, uh, who is uh, the – he's a priest of the missionary uh, of Consolata. Uh, he's apostolic prefect of Ulaanbaatar uh, in Mongolia. Okay. Uh, he's 47 years old. He's which, the youngest. He's the youngest, which right. would make him uh, probably the youngest really since uh, – and here's a name to remember – Carol Wotiwa. Mm -hmm 
was named when he was only 47 years old. And then you're right. We also have uh, the first uh, cardinal from East Timor, which has a very high Catholic population but has also endured a great deal of suffering. That's right. And his name is Virgilio do Carmo da Silva. Uh, how did I do? Salesian. Okay, there you go. Good. <laughs> um, so there's one thing I wanted to get to before um, we conclude our, our show, and that is um, is just how many cardinals uh, that Pope Francis has created. It's it's a very high percentage. Many of these uh, will be electors, cardinal electors. That's right. So please tell us a little bit about how he's changed the landscape of the College of Cardinals. Well, in this, uh, I think you can make uh, an argument at least that this is one of the reasons why he has not held this type of extraordinary consistory for a while uh, in that he has, I think, been waiting until the, the balance has shifted uh, between his appointments and those of Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. He has now named out of all of this group about 121, which now is far more than half of the cardinals. Now, there are always certain assumptions that people make about uh, Pope Francis's appointments. Um, I think we can safely say uh, that uh, the, the cardinals he's appointed from the United States uh, tend to be on the more progressive side of the church. Uh, certainly Bishop McElroy, Cardinal-elect McElroy, would fall in that category. So there's a, an assumption on the, the part of a lot of people that um, that's uniform mm-hmm. in, in terms of Pope Francis's appointments. I, I would beg to differ just in the sense of the, many of the cardinals from the periphery uh, are from Africa, from India, and elsewhere, which tend to be very uh, traditional in, in its Catholicism. So we have to be careful about making too many assumptions about that. But uh, the reality is that we are now looking at a majority of cardinals within the College of Cardinals who have been named by Pope Francis. Now, what that all means once we have a conclave, whenever that happens, it's hard to say. Uh, I always remind people that uh, it was the uh, consistory and the conclave that elected Francis that was almost completely appointed by Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI in exactly the same way that the, the, the College of Cardinals in the conclave in, in 1958 that elected John XXIII was appointed almost completely by Pius XII and Pius XI. So we have to be very careful about making too many assumptions about what happens when the doors of the Sistine Chapel are closed. Are you saying that uh, that the Holy Spirit also <laughs> likes to make a mess sometimes? We uh, put great stock and faith and hope in the Holy Spirit. Well, we can uh, point our listeners to another good article that can tell you a lot about what's happening, including what is a consistory uh, in this uh, CNA piece, Catholic News Agency piece at ncregister.com. It is called What You Need to Know About Pope Francis's Next Consistory. And um, Matthew, again, safe travels on your trip, and we look forward to your reporting for EWTN News uh, in, this, in these coming days. Looking forward to it, too. Remember, for more news analysis and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and until next week, may God bless you. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on EWTN.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.